Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's the South's biggest deal for AJC podcast listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week. For life, as long as you keep your subscription. That's our sports and politics coverage, breaking news and in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films, events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start for new subscribers only. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, death in a hot car, mistake or murder. Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. It was like she was uh, delivering a speech at an insurance seminar, which is not to be denigrating, but there was no emotion. She just sort of talked about Cooper and the things, really the things that he would miss out on, that she was glad that he would miss out on. What I'm saying is we have not found any evidence to suggest that there was conspiracy. I'll leave it like that. All right, well, how about leave it like this? There's no evidence at all that Leanne Harris is involved in anything, is there? Circumstantial, that's it. Circumstantial? Circumstantial. Somebody has to tell him he can't speak like that. You got the evidence, bring it. Bring it. You think she did something? Indict her today. Jury selection in the Justin Ross Harris murder trial has been underway for almost a week now. About 250 of Harris's peers have been summoned to Cobb County Superior Court so that 12 of them, and a few alternates, can be chosen to decide Harris's fate. One thing so far is certain, it's going to be a long slog. To no one's surprise, Nearly everyone in the jury pool so far has heard about the case and formed opinions about it. Many believe Harris murdered his son, and there is no way someone could leave a child in a hot car by mistake. But it does appear as if Judge Mary Staley will eventually find enough jurors who say they could be impartial and are willing to decide the case based on the evidence and the law. How long that'll take is anyone's guess. Most reporters don't have the time to cover jury selection. And most people probably think it's boring and filled with tedium. But if you have the chance to witness jury selection, you can learn more about what people think than you can imagine. In one high-profile federal corruption trial, for example, I saw a number of people in the jury pool own up to being racists in a packed courtroom. For this reason, jury selection can be the most important part of a criminal trial. Marietta criminal defense attorney Jimmy Berry has been practicing law in Cobb County for 45 years. He's defended at least 150 murder cases. In other words, he has faced tough cases and tough juries many times. It's a hard case to defend. Anytime you've got a child that's dead, uh, it's so difficult to defend. People have a hard time, or will have a hard time, in believing that he just totally forgot that child. It'll be a tough case, but I I think the case is going to come down to picking a jury, like most cases do. I mean, that's what the O.J. case was about. 
came down to picking the jury. They got the right venue, and they picked the right jury. Uh, and that happens in so many cases. You get a good jury, one that's willing to listen, and you know, sometimes you can win a case that might not be won with another jury that's much more conservative. Folks in Metro Atlanta will remember the Marathon Public Schools test cheating trial last year. Twelve defendants, a million lawyers, a redesigned courtroom to accommodate them all. Jury selection in that case took six weeks. Six weeks! I know, because I felt like I spent years in that courtroom during those six weeks. I'm Bill Rankin. I cover legal affairs for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I covered the Atlanta Public Schools case. And for the past few months, I've been working on season two of Breakdown, the story of the death of Cooper Harris and the murder charges against his father. So here's what they've been doing in Cobb Superior Court. It's called voir dire. I can't tell you how many times I've heard lawyers and even judges call it voir dire. I mean, come on, voir dire. Voir dire is old French for to speak the truth. In new French, it simply means to see, to say. And it's the process of examining the panel of jurors. At the outset, you'll typically hear lawyers telling the panel, what we want here are jurors who will consider the case fairly and impartially. But you know and I know that's not really what they want at all. Lawyers want people who will be on their side. If they succeed in seating such people, the odds of winning improve dramatically. On the other hand, if a lawyer with a close case gets jurors who don't like the client or the lawyer, it doesn't matter how strong a case is made. According to one Duke University Law School review, in most cases, a defendant's fate is already fixed after jury selection. Denise Delarue of Atlanta is a jury consultant who has worked on some of the most high-profile criminal cases in recent memory. Susan Smith, the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, former NFL star Ray Lewis, Olympic Park bomber Eric Robert Rudolph, and most recently, Shahar Zarnayev, the Boston Marathon bomber. Delarue has both a psychology degree and a law degree. Here she is explaining how jury selection works here in Georgia. In the state of Georgia on felony cases, each side gets nine peremptory challenges. So that would mean after the judge has uh, granted all the challenges for cause, he or she is gonna grant. That means a person says, I can't be fair. So the judge excludes them then each side gets nine strikes. They get to kick off nine people just because they don't think they would be the best jurors for their case. They don't have to give a reason. It just has to be not based on race or based on gender. Anything else goes. Delarue says the term jury selection is a misnomer. It's really jury deselection. Nobody gets to pick the jurors they want, right? It's not like when we were in school and we got to pick players for a kickball team. I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you. We get to kick off the people that we don't want or that we don't think would be good jurors. I will get asked a lot of times, what's the ideal juror profile or who do I want for a juror on my case? And that might be amusing um, or somewhat instructive to think about, but that's not the decision we get to make. We only get to say, who don't we want? Who are our worst nightmares? Who can we not live with? So I always encourage lawyers to think that way and to ask questions that are going to reveal jurors who are not favorable to us, who are biased against us, so that we can use those peremptory strikes wisely and get those jurors uh, 
away from the jury panel. Jurors are multidimensional people. It's just not as simple as race or gender, she says. I get that question the most commonly, do I want men or women? And, you know, I will say uh, Sarah Palin and Lady Gaga are both women, right? And they feel very differently about most things. We could name married women with kids in the news or that we know and say, well, they have that in common, but they don't have much else in common. Let's talk about Cobb County. This is where the jurors will come from. And it turns out that Cobb County is a wonderful place for prosecutors. For criminal defendants, not so much. Cobb is conservative with a capital C. Voters there led the suburbanization of the Republican Party in the 1970s and 1980s. Newt Gingrich represented Cobb when he led the Republican Revolution in 1994. The county commission once passed a resolution condemning what it called the gay lifestyle. The city of Kennesaw in North Cobb once passed an ordinance saying the head of every household must own a gun. We're talking Cobb Servative. Listen as Marietta criminal defense lawyers Jimmy Berry and Ashley Merchant describe Cobb jurors. Well, this is a very conservative county. Uh, it's it's uh, primarily Republican. Got a lot of churches here. Uh, so you, you have very conservative juries, uh, very difficult um, cases to try. I think in Cobb County particularly, it's going to be a huge challenge because we have very conservative jurors in Cobb County. Most of them have been married for a long time. Um, when I pick juries in Cobb County, I regularly get folks that have lived here 20, 30, 40 years. They've been married just as long. I have been very lucky and had some fair success here in, in Cobb County with Cobb County juries. I think they are uh, willing to listen to the case um, and, and render fair verdicts, but um, I, I find also that it's just such a conservative area that it's, that it's hard to find people that are liberal thinkers, in a, especially in a case like this. And I think jury selection is vital in all cases, but in this case particularly, because Cobb County tends to have very conservative jurors, and they tend to have jurors with families and things like this just don't go on regularly in Cobb County. Vic Reynolds, Cobb County's district attorney, was Jimmy Berry's law partner for years. Now the two are on opposite sides, but Reynolds doesn't disagree with Berry's assessment of Cobb juries. Reynolds declined to discuss the Harris case directly, but he was very happy to talk about Cobb jurors who have been very good to his office. I think Cobb, as a general rule, would still be considered a conservative county. I, I think that that's a fair, characterization. Uh, we keep up our numbers on, on how we do at trial, uh, at least we have since I've been DA, and, and we have a pretty high conviction rate. We, we average over the first three years of my term, we convicted about a 93% conviction rate at jury trial. When the trial gets underway, the focus will be on Ross Harris, obviously, but the people shaping the case and doing most of the talking are the judge and the prosecution and defense teams. Let's break them down. Good morning, everyone. I think we're ready to proceed in the matter of the state of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris. That's Superior Court Judge Mary Staley, who will preside over the trial. As we've said before, Staley is widely considered to be a pro-prosecution judge. In fact, she's a former Cobb County prosecutor herself. Here's attorney Ashley Merchant, who's tried numerous cases before Staley. She's a very good judge to try a high-profile case because she runs a very tight ship in her courtroom and she doesn't um, let 
she won't let it turn into a spectacle. And she has the experience trying these types of high-profile cases, which is important, because she won't get consumed with it. Besides being a Superior Court judge, Staley presides over Cobb's mental health court. It seeks to stabilize mentally ill offenders so they'll become successful members of the community. Staley has also been on short lists of possible appointees when vacancies arose on the Georgia Supreme Court and federal court benches. Six years ago, Staley's name hit the national news because of one of the most bizarre episodes in American jurisprudence. Staley presided over a wrenching trial in 1993, during which Marcus Wellens was sentenced to death for raping and strangling a 15-year-old girl. But after the verdict, according to court records, jurors did the unimaginable. They gave Staley a gag gift, a chocolate penis. In 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court halted Wellens' execution. The court said the disturbing facts about the gift raised serious questions about the conduct of the trial. It instructed the Federal Appeals Court in Atlanta to take a deeper look into the incident. Shortly after that ruling, Staley told the AJC in an interview that she cringed at the notion that her name and the word penis would be within five words of one another in a newspaper story. She also called the high court's perspective on the incident elitist and superior. She also said this, quote, Supreme Court justices go to parties, they drink Chardonnay, and eat brie off little crackers. Who do you think the jurors are? They're school teachers, bus drivers, housewives, plumbers, and electricians. They are the people who run our society, unquote. Staley said the work she does is important and that she does it in a dignified manner. In 2013, the Federal Appeals Court in Atlanta upheld Wellen's death sentence once again. While the erotic gift was tasteless and inappropriate, the court said, it played no part in Staley's or the jury's consideration. Wellens was executed in June 2014. Leading Harris's defense team is H. Maddox Kilgore. Like District Attorney Reynolds, Kilgore would not comment publicly on the impending trial. But I caught a recent talk he gave to a class of paralegals at Kennesaw State University. But so you'll understand that I'm not just some uh, hippie uh, criminal defense attorney. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about who I am and how I got to be here so that um, it might make a little more sense to you. Kilgore once worked in the criminal division of the Georgia Attorney General's office and then as a prosecutor in, guess where, Cobb County. He prosecuted felonies. Everything, he said, from a lady who got into it with a cop on her front lawn fighting over a six-pack of beer to a 17-year-old who had her skull beat in over $300. He spoke frankly about the prosecutor's view of the world. I wasn't in a position to really consider a lot about the people I was prosecuting. They had families or children, wives. Um, I mean, frankly, it just wasn't my problem. My role was to prosecute them. And it was easy not to worry about all the other stuff. When you're the prosecutor and you represent the state, um, you kind of get used to winning. And you get used to the judges siding with you every time. Or it certainly felt like every time, which kind of boosts you up even more, right? And that's where I was. I had my little badge, and it was easy to be concerned with winning instead of what I should have been concerned with, which was doing justice. It was so easy. And it's easy to believe that the ends justify the means when you think you're righteous. I mean, when you're doing that, 
that work of, it's really easy to see somebody in an orange jumpsuit and waist chains as the bad guy. They've been arrested, right? There's a police report, right? So it was real easy to cast myself as the good guy and the person in orange as the bad guy. And it was easy not to, not to really see them as people. I know it probably sounds crazy, but it was easy to, for it to be a black and white world. Not really a lot of gray. It was easy not to consider the margins. But after several years at the DA's office, Kilgore said he began seeing the gray. So when I began to notice the grays and the margins, after 10 years, I left a very good paying job as a prosecutor at the end of 2005, a job where I had a lot of respect, where I won just about every time I walked out into the arena. And I started to represent people, people charged with crimes, people who were up against that machine that I was part of, oftentimes people who were falsely accused. He now describes criminal defense work as humbling and rewarding. When you hear criminal defense attorney, if you think, you know, just right below used car salesman, scoundrel, rat scallion, uh, you know, no better than the criminals they represent, uh, you probably, first you probably watch a lot of Nancy Grace um, or SVU, okay, if that's what your idea is. But if your son's been arrested because he was riding around in a car with somebody with marijuana and um, he lost his scholarship to Berry College and uh, you're desperate for some help, you might have a different perspective who they are and what they do. I put together this podcast with Richard Hallex. He's the producer, my editor, and he believes we're friends. One thing we share in common is our love of author Michael Conley who created the Harry Bosch series of detective novels. Kilgore cited these books and said he's used some of Bosch's own words as a mantra. And in the book, uh, Concrete Bond is uh, one of my favorite quotes. But it says, if the system turns away from the abuses inflicted on the guilty, then who can be next innocent? Obviously, that's an easy way of saying the law better apply equally to everybody. Or you know who's going to end up getting burned? It's going to be the innocent guy. And he cited one more quote from Detective Bosch. Everybody counts or nobody counts. It's very simple. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it sums up really nicely the way that I feel about our criminal justice system and doing what I do. Everybody counts or nobody counts. In the courtroom, Kilgore will be assisted by two other attorneys. One is his law partner, Carlos Rodriguez. His interest in criminal law began as a student at Marietta High School when he interned for a Cobb County judge. Also on the defense team is Brian Lumpkin, who was a felony prosecutor in, yes, you know where, Cobb County. Lumpkin now has a solo practice in Marietta. You may recall that the current district attorney, Vic Reynolds, defended Lynn Turner, the black widow killer who poisoned two of her husbands with antifreeze. Well, Brian Lumpkin was on the other side, the prosecution team in that case. On his website, Lumpkin notes that he has litigated more than 100 trials. Representing the people of Georgia will be Senior Assistant District Attorney Chuck Boring, assisted by Deputy Chief District Attorney Jesse Evans. Unlike the other lawyers involved, Boring and Evans have only prosecuted cases. 
Uh, with any team, there has to be a captain. There has to be somebody calling the shots. In this particular case, uh, the lead counsel is a young man named Chuck Boring. Chuck uh, has been a career prosecutor. He started out in the Coweta circuit uh, uh, and prosecuted in Fulton for a while before coming to Cobb. Chuck is the uh, actually the head of our SVU unit, the Special Victims Unit. In other words, anytime there's a case involving a child victim, it goes through Chuck's unit. He has uh, three lawyers who work with him in that unit, and he's the head of it. And so, and looking at this particular case, and obviously having uh, a child victim, uh, I made the decision to put Chuck as point on the case. So he'll be trying the majority of, of the actual trial. You'd expect Boring's boss to talk about what a great lawyer he is, but he enjoys respect from the defense bar as well. Here's Ashley Merchant. Chuck's a great prosecutor. He is a very good prosecutor. I've been trying cases with him for a decade, and um, he knows what he's doing. He's one of the best. So anytime you know you're going up against Chuck, you know you've got to be prepared. He will outwork anybody. He is always prepared. He's going to know more about the case than anybody. So he is definitely a strong opponent. In numerous pretrial hearings, Chuck Boring has been anything but boring. He comes off as a confident, sometimes combative attorney who has been extremely disdainful when describing Ross Harris's prodigious promiscuity. He also has a sense of humor. Last week, Boring was questioning one potential juror who said he was concerned about being picked to serve. Why? He said he has a tendency to nod off when he sits still for extended periods of time. I'm surprised I haven't put you to sleep yet, the prosecutor said. After all, my last name is Boring. District Attorney Reynolds says that Boring will have able help at the prosecution table. He'll be assisted in, in the trial by a young man named Jesse Evans. Jesse's also a career prosecutor. He spent his entire career in Cobb County, in fact. He came here right out of law school and has been uh, here and has worked his way up from a trial line ADA up to a point now where he's one of the four deputy chiefs of this office. Jesse, uh, his primary duty is uh, he is deputy chief of major crime units, so uh, he has his hands in virtually every homicide that occurs in Cobb County. He responds to the scene, to most of them, along with investigators and works it from literally the ground up. And so I made a decision to, uh, to put uh, Chuck and Jesse together. They're close. They know each other. They've worked together before. And so they'll be, uh, they'll be toting the water on this case in the courtroom. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents. Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. We spent much of the first three episodes talking about the murder case against Ross Harris. He's facing one count of malice murder and two counts of felony murder. But even if Harris is acquitted of all the murder charges, he's still facing a mountain of sex-related charges. And Kilgore has tried but failed to persuade Judge Staley to have Harris tried separately on those charges. He argued that these allegations are too prejudicial and will influence the jury on the murder verdict. 
So let's break down the sex charges. In the murder indictment, Harris is also charged with one count of criminal attempt to persuade a girl under 18 to send him lewd photos of herself, essentially a child pornography charge. In court, the teenager has been identified only by her initials, C.D. The punishment for this charge? Up to 10 years in prison. Then, there are two misdemeanors. One, sending detailed verbal descriptions and accounts of sexual excitement and sexual conduct to the girl. And two, sending a photo of his erect penis to her. Punishment? Up to one year in prison for each count. Net? Harris faces up to 12 years on these counts alone. At a hearing in October, Boring asked lead police investigator Phil Stoddard to explain how Harris and the teenager first met. Let's go back to how CD and the defendant met. What application or app did they use to meet? They first started off on Whisper. Um, CD sent a Whisper out, he responded to it. Um, Then they switched over to Kick. CD said that they met online, it was August or September 2013. She would have been 16 at the time. And she was in high school and the defendant knew her age, correct? That is correct. While cross-examining Stoddard, Kilgore asked whether Harris initiated the sexual conversations. I can't say specifically, but there there were several times where she would start a conversation with a sexual statement. The suggestion suggestion somehow that this was somehow a one-sided event where he's just asking for photographs, that's not at all accurate, is it? I would not say it was one-sided. Okay, because she asked for photographs a lot. Isn't that true? She did ask for photographs. And as I told you in episode two, C.D. is one of the women who strongly defend Harris and say he loved Cooper and would never deliberately hurt him. Harris and the teenager were obviously close, as this testimony suggests. And she advised you that Mr. Harris had counseled her to stay in school uh, when she was contemplating uh, dropping out of school? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, She told you that at at one point in time, she had feelings for him, but Ross Harris told her it would never happen because he was married. Yes, sir. But the relationship still revolved around the prospects of sex. So in addition to the defendant admitting to uh, infidelity to uh, CD, did he also attempt to meet up with her to engage in sexual relations outside of his marriage? Correct. And the last time, I believe, was that uh, while his... Uh, Wife was out of town just a few weeks before the homicide. That is correct. Wait a minute. Hold on. So Harris was not charged with trying to meet up with an underage girl and have sex with her? But he was charged with a felony for trying to persuade the girl to send him nude pictures of herself? That carries a sentence of 5 to 20 years. But if he'd actually rendezvoused with her and had sex, Harris would not have been breaking the law? Really? We need to hear from an expert on this. So I turned to one. Atlanta criminal defense attorney Don Samuel. The law in Georgia and federal court as well is that it is a crime to possess child pornography, which is defined as you know, a sexually explicit image of a child either engaged in sexual conduct or sexually explicit photograph. Um, and the child is defined as uh, anybody under the age of 18. So child pornography is anybody under the age of 18, and that includes the crime of sending images uh, to a child. Uh, And yet, the um, kind of paradoxically, 
the law is also that the age of consent to actually engage in sexual conduct uh, in Georgia is 16. So you have this peculiar situation where it is perfectly legal, um, putting morality aside, but it's perfectly legal to have consensual sex with a 17-year-old, but if you take a picture of it, it's a federal crime and a state crime. You can um, engage in sexual conduct, but you cannot have a photograph of sexual conduct, even if it's consensual. You'd think three murder charges, each carrying a mandatory life sentence, and all these sex charges would be enough, right? Well, not in the eyes of the Cobb District Attorney's Office. On March 4th, about five weeks before the murder trial was to begin, the DA obtained a new indictment against Harris. More sex charges. Lots more. This new case involves three minor girls, though not the minor girl called C.D., who was part of the first indictment. The new charges? Two felony counts of sexual exploitation of a minor for possessing lewd photos of two girls under 18. Each of those charges carry punishment of up to 20 years. He was also charged with sending sexually explicit messages and photos of his business to two minor girls. That drew six misdemeanor charges of disseminating harmful material to minors. That's another six years. And it's important to note that the misdemeanors were allegedly committed between March 8, 2014 and May 29, 2014. Harris is to be tried separately on those charges after his murder trial. After these most recent charges, Kilgore issued a written statement condemning the new indictment. Here's what he said, quote, Despite possessing Ross Harris's cell phone for almost two years, the Cobb County District Attorney has only now chosen to indict Ross for some alleged consensual electronic communications. We are concerned that the timing of this indictment is a calculated maneuver to inflame public opinion against Ross on the eve of jury selection, unquote. District Attorney Vic Reynolds said the timing was unavoidable. The new indictment was made possible by advances in electronic forensic analysis in conjunction with recent interviews of newly discovered victims, he said. Had the state delayed charging any further, prosecution of some of the charges would have been barred by the statute of limitations. So what about this new indictment so close to trial? Here's Don Samuel again. Well, the timing is terribly unfortunate, obviously, for the defendant to have to have this publicity about these other unrelated charges as he's getting ready to defend himself in a murder case. Obviously, I don't know exactly what's going on inside the DA's office. It's a shame they couldn't be more efficient, but they are running up against the statute of limitations. So the question is, should they have done it earlier? And that really depends on whether they had the ability or the forensic tools available to have done it earlier. They could not have waited until after the murder trial because of the risk of running up against the statute of limitations, which is two years for misdemeanors in this state. What this really means is that if Harris is actually acquitted of the murder charges, he still faces up to 58 years in prison if he's convicted of all the sex charges in both indictments. And prosecutors appear to have electronic proof supporting those charges. Once the jury is seated, the lawyers move to center stage. They'll deliver opening statements, which means it's now time for another lesson, lesson in, in the law. Opening statements are not arguments, although you routinely hear them mischaracterized as opening arguments. They're opening statements. The opening is supposed to be a fact-based statement that prepares the jury for what it's going to learn during the trial. For the defense, 
It's the time to let jurors know there are two sides to the story, so don't make up your minds just yet. The idea is that the lawyer is directly addressing the jury, usually with great respect, and laying the foundations for the case he or she will build over the course of the trial. It's about establishing a rapport, making bonds. Attorneys can be ingratiating, or funny, or solemn, or any other attribute that might win points with the jury. What they're not supposed to do is state things as fact that aren't true, and certainly not make any promises about evidence or testimony that will never be presented. That happened in spectacular fashion during a notorious case I covered years ago. That was the case against NFL star Ray Lewis, charged with the murder on the night of Super Bowl 34 in Atlanta. During his opening statement, District Attorney Paul Howard demonstrated for the jury a roundhouse punch he said Lewis threw at one of the two stabbing victims. It was a blow in the bottom half of the victim's chest, Howard said. But no such testimony was uttered during the course of the trial. Lewis worked out a mid-trial deal. He pleaded guilty to obstructing justice, a misdemeanor, and was given probation. In exchange, he testified for the state against his two co-defendants. But both were acquitted of all charges. And after the trial, jurors expressed frustration that Howard had made promises during his opening that he didn't keep. In the Harris case, we can almost predict how the openings are going to go. Here's what came out in pretrial hearings. Kilgore has said repeatedly there is no direct evidence that Harris intended to leave Cooper in his car to die. Here he is, referencing the midday errand Harris ran to eat lunch and buy light bulbs. He opens the door, tosses the, the light bulbs in. He doesn't linger. He doesn't get anything out of the glove box. He doesn't look back there. He doesn't do anything, nothing, nothing whatsoever to suggest that somehow he knows the child's in the car. Nothing. Thank goodness we got that video because it's going to demonstrate just that. He's got no idea that Cooper's in the car. Why would he take his closest friends to, a, to, to, to his crime scene? Why would he do that knowing that, that they, there's, I mean, they're going to be witnesses against him at a later time? It doesn't make any sense at all. It makes sense if you realize he didn't know. And there's no evidence that he knew the child was in the car. Kilgore is also expected to tell the jury that many of the women Harris sexted with or had affairs with will say that he loved Cooper and would never commit such a crime. Prosecutor Boring addressed that during a hearing in February of this year. Just touching on a little bit of what Mr. Kilgore said regarding some of the comments the defendant made uh, about Cooper to these other girls he was talking to online and in person and things like that. I would just say oftentimes uh, actions speak uh, a lot louder than words. I think what, that's what this case is going to show. In talking about some of his arguments regarding the times that his client, the defendant, may have said he loved Cooper to one of these girls or he may have said that he adored Cooper to one of these girls. The two girls he specifically referenced, two of them, one was 18 at the time, and the other was 16 and then 17. These are young girls he's talking to and trying to basically get into sexual conversations and do sexual acts with these girls. Obviously, he's not going to run up and say, hey, um, you want to go have sex with me? Uh, by the way, I hate my child. Or I want to kill my child, of course not. Boring is certain to make hay with the whisper exchange Harris was having with a woman even as he was eating breakfast with his son which turned out to be Cooper's last meal. In this case, the defendant is telling these girls what they want to hear to get what he wants. 
And we'll just talk briefly in a second about some of the things he also said to these various girls during the time he was trying to start relationships with them and things like that. But I think what also speaks volumes, as Mr. Kilgore alluded to, and kind of sums it up, is what he said 10 minutes before locking that child in a car to somebody anonymous, somebody that didn't really know his identity. 10 minutes before he locks that child in the car, he tells this person who had posted about hating their marriage and tired of the novelty of having kids and then it's worn off and they're exhausted. He told this anonymous stranger, not words of encouragement, but specifically about his son. I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. 10 minutes before he locks the child in that car to die. Boring asserts that Harris was obsessed with having sex with as many women as he could. There was no room, Boring said, for a child in a life devoted to such pursuits. Not only was he sexting, not only was he meeting up with other women in parking lots, he was actually seeking out and meeting up with prostitutes and paying for sex. As, most, as recently, it was within a few weeks of Cooper's death. This was evidence he was unhappy in his marriage. Again, actions speak louder than words. He says Harris even made a note to himself about the nature of temptation. From his own Evernote notes, he made a note that Sunday the 15th, right before church, and put in his phone the anatomy of temptation and wrote desire with a greater than symbol, sin greater than symbol, death, three days before this incident. He's certain to tell the jury several other things about Harris, how he accessed the child-free website on reddit.com, accessed a site about how to survive in prison, and watched a video about the effects of locking animals in hot cars. Have you forgotten what we said about memory? Kilgore talked about it at the probable cause hearing. What happened here was that Ross pulled out Chick-fil-A and his mind went elsewhere. What happened? Now, you gotta pull into traffic, you gotta go through a light. It's easy to get distracted when you get behind the wheel. Everybody's done it. His mind's already skipping ahead to the rest of the day. And, you know, judges, as much as we want to think that there's no way that we could ever forget a child. I mean, of all things, we surely we can't forget a child. We do. People do. We forget things in a moment. That's how we forget things. This is something that has tugged at me since I heard about this case. How could you forget your child? My wife Carol and I have talked about this a lot. We have three kids, all grown now, but always very memorable. Carol continues to insist there's no way anyone in their right mind would forget. She has never wavered in this view, not even a little. I think that's ridiculous. I don't know what, how you can forget your kid in the car. When our children were little, I scheduled my life around where to shop and where to go so I could take them in and out easy enough. I mean, your whole life revolves around your children. It's to forget them in a car, I think, is absurd. That was Carol. While I was still thinking about this, I called Dan Simons, psychology professor at the University of Illinois. He co-authored The Invisible Gorilla, a bestseller that explains that our minds don't work the way we think they do. He's also an expert on attention and memory. Yeah, I, I think the bigger issue is how can this, how can it happen that somebody who's a good parent, and you know, I don't know if this person's a good parent or not, but assuming that they are, a good parent can have this happen to them. 
assuming somebody's a good parent, how could they not think about their kid at the moment that they're getting out of their car at the wrong place? Simons says, ask yourself this question. Have you ever had the situation where you're driving someplace and you, you kind of get lost in thought and then you end up someplace but you don't remember having made all the turns along the way? Right? You stayed on the road, you avoided traffic, you stopped at stoplights, uh, but you kind of went into a zombie state and you got where you were going without remembering how you did it. And everybody has that experience, right? We have that state where we're just, our minds on something else. And, you know, it's not ideal, of course, when you're on the road, you really want to be paying attention because you're driving around in this, you know, two-ton piece of metal traveling at 60 miles an hour. We all have that experience that we get into a routine, we get going on the road, and at some, sometimes we just kind of zone out. And we can stay on the road because most of it's predictable, most of it's what we do every time. Well, think about how that translates into the situation where there's something unusual going on. So you're driving along, you zone out for a minute, and you, as a result, do the thing that you normally do. You go through your morning routine. You get to work, you get out of the car, you close the door, you walk into the office. And all of those sorts of things are just what you do by habit. And if it's your regular routine, you might not stop to realize, oh, wait, something's not regular here, not what it's supposed to be. And if the kid's quiet, that can happen. Simons says it all comes down to how much brain power you can use once you've established a routine, whatever that routine is. There's only so much we can kind of pay attention to at once, and relying on these sorts of routines and patterns normally is a great thing for us. Right? So the fact that you can go into that sort of daydreaming zombie state when you're driving and still get home without running off the road is something that's a really remarkable ability. Right? We don't need to devote all of our cognitive resources to staying on the road. Instead, we can think about other things that we care about. And most of the time, that works great for us. Most of the time, we're limiting how much effort we have to put into the things that we do all the time, that we do daily, and it allows us to do things more richly. Don't forget that Harris took Cooper to the Chick-fil-A that morning. That Chick-fil-A is just a quarter mile from Harris's office. What if Harris went to Chick-fil-A for breakfast or lunch all the time? Not just that day with Cooper, but on a lot of other days when he was by himself. I asked Simons. In a lot of these cases, what happens is somebody does something regularly. They go to Chick-fil-A, go to their office, go to Chick-fil-A, go to their office. They do that over and over and over again. And the time when they leave the child in the car is a time when they shouldn't have been doing their regular thing. They should have been doing something else. And those are the cases when these tragedies happen, when somebody just continues with their routine without thinking about it. If this was Harris's regular routine... It's probably a really sort of almost automatic process for him, that he doesn't have to think about, I'm going to work now. He just, that's what he does by default. And it's those cases in which the default doesn't work that you've got a problem. Simons, who has two children, talked about his routine for making sure they were always accounted for. You know, I got, I got to the point about this, knowing enough about this, that when I had my own kids, I was just paranoid. I tried to work it into my routine that every time I locked the door, I looked in the back seat. Um, every and, time. You know, I, yeah, because if you make it a routine, if you make it part of your routine, then it's the thing you do no matter what every time you get out of your car. Right? So making that part of your routine, it takes an extra you know, half a second to just glance in the back seat, make sure you're not leaving anything there. Just that action in making that sort of a standard thing that you do every single time means that if something's a break from routine, you'll still look there. We really misunderstand how pervasively we miss things. And I think this is a classic case of that in which our intuitions about what we would do don't match the reality that really we all could possibly do this. It's not just it's not just bad people. It's not just bad parents. It's anybody could have this happen to them. And even the most dedicated parents in the world could have this happen to them. 
That's why it's so scary. We met Jeanette Fennell in episode one. She said the same thing, that this sort of tragedy happens to good parents. Fennell says she's been told that Maddox Kilgore plans to call on an expert witness to explain it. That would be David Diamond, psychology professor for the University of South Florida. He has spoken extensively on this subject and has coined the term forgotten baby syndrome. Fennell says that if it's shown that Harris intentionally left Cooper in the car, he should pay for it. On the other hand, she wishes the public wasn't so quick to blame parents who accidentally leave their kids in the car. You know, many, many times if a child drowns or maybe finds a gun that's unlocked, it's very rare for those parents to be accused of anything. But in these cases, for whatever reason, you know, people find it much easier to blame the parent than to understand that this is the most horrific and tragic mistake someone can ever make. As for the outcome of the trial? Well, we kind of have a a theory about how this is going to come to be. And obviously, it's going to be terrible if he's found guilty. Because if people find out that he did this with some intention, then it's going to further distance them from something like that happening to them as good parents. They're saying, oh, he's a bad guy. He did all these bad things. All the people that do that must be like that. And I'm a good parent, so it can't happen to me. And of course, we don't want that to happen because we want people to put the look before you lock safety tips into place. Now, on the other hand, let's say he is found innocent. And this shows how he was judged and he was tried and he was convicted by the media and by the citizens of the United States. And Everybody did that with not understanding the law or the true facts in this case and what took place. But that can help us, I think, because it would show how people jump to these conclusions and you know, decide someone is guilty when they don't really know what all the facts are. Next on Breakdown, my colleague Christian Boone and I will be providing weekly updates during the trial. We'll tell you the highlights of the previous week and what's expected to come. And you can find daily reports at ajcbreakdown.com. I recently asked Christian what he thought about the case. You can go back and forth. Sometimes you think, you know, how could somebody forget something in that amount of time, driving across the street? But then how could he be so stupid as an IT guy not to cover up his tracks? There's solid arguments to be made for and against. I mean, it's not my decision, obviously, whether he's innocent or guilty, but it's a case that could go either way, although obviously we're in a very conservative county. The jurors are going to want someone to pay for this, so he's got an uphill battle, but this is going to be clearly the most sensational trial that I've covered and probably one of the more interesting. Season 2 of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall.
our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 